0: Kickbump podcast acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the East Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, kick mamas. Although I shouldn't say that because actually recently we have uh, done a bit of a survey and we found that a lot of you who listen uh, aren't pregnant or aren't a mama. You are not even really planning. You just want to educate yourself on all things parenthood, which is super cool. So welcome to everyone who is listening. Thank you for tuning in. I am so excited to be here. I absolutely love doing this podcast. I think because it's a moment where I can just sit and reflect and learn, educate myself, meet other people, chat to other people, share community stories, and also just get to vent but also share my own stories as well. It's it's super nice to have a, a kind of point each week where I, can, where I can do that. So thank you for allowing me the space to chat to you. And I think with that in mind, I'm going to start today's podcast with a bit of a Harvey update. Gosh, it is such a fun age. He's—I mean, he's technically a toddler now, which is crazy. I think I'll forever see him as my little baby, but he is just so active, so cheeky, has so much personality. It is so much fun. Uh, I can feel like he's—he's he's trying to say more words. So for a long time, the only kind of noises or words that came from his mouth were either the sound "raw" like a lion. Or um da 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 da. da. <laughs> very 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 rarely do I ever get a mum. And what else did he say? Oh, door, door. He would point at a door and he would say door. And he's obsessed with playing with doors. So that was kind of where we were at. Whereas now, just the other day, he actually said Ari, which is our dog's name. So that got me really excited. And he said that a few times now. He said it randomly in the pram. It's Really cute when he does because I just – I keep, like, seeing in my mind that they're going to have, like, the most beautiful friendship as he gets a little bit older. And on that topic, actually, it's really sweet. Um, Ari's kind of always not really wanted a bar of Harvey, like, just really kept his distance. In fairness, Harvey just pulls Ari's ears and hair or even just like smacks him um, whenever Ari is close. So I don't blame Ari for keeping his distance, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like really, really sad about it and I really wish they got along or would cuddle more and everything like that. But um, I know it's pretty normal for a dog, you know, to act this way when a new baby comes. Um, But just the other day, it was so sweet, literally heart melting moment Harvey started playing with Ari and Ari played back in his room. It was so sweet. It's the first time Ari actually gave Harvey any sort of attention. Ari always gives Harvey like this side eye, like he's got an eye on Harvey but like doesn't want to actually pretend like he's interested in what he's doing, whereas he was fully – playing with Harvey like jumping and barking and like a fun way like his tail was wagging the entire time Harvey was laughing and giggling and it was just the sweetest thing so I feel like that's a step in the right direction in their relationship and I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And on Harvey's sleep, I feel like I always include where he's at with his sleep in my updates because it's forever changing. Anyone listening who have had, has had experience with babies or toddlers would know that you kind of get used to one routine and it can change, uh, whether they go through a regression or, you know, just your situation changes or they might be teething or sick or whatever things ebb and flow and that's okay. And You might get used to one thing and then it changes. Um, Well, for the last month or so, we were used to Harvey having a very early morning wake up. It just seemed like no matter what time I put him to bed, whether it be a little bit later or like normal time or, um, you know, would try and change up his naps. He was just an early riser and he was waking up every morning between 5.30 and 5.45 And I honestly thought that that was just going to be the way it was forever. And I started to accept it. But just as I started to accept it, a few things happened. There was one morning I, neither of us could kind of give him the time and everything in the morning. And so when he woke up, I went up at about six o'clock and gave him a bottle in his bed as I ran out the door. And then Josh was going to, you know, go and get him. Um, as soon as he was done with the bottle and get him up. But what we found was he actually went back to sleep after having that bottle and he ended up sleeping until like 7.20. So that was like – that totally flipped his routine for the day obviously – Um, But that day in particular, he then had a really solid like midday sleep that went for quite a while. And so when Josh went to try and pop him down for his afternoon nap, because he's still at that stage where he needs two naps a day, he absolutely refused his nap. Um, And so we popped him to bed a little bit earlier at like 6.30 and he slept all the way till 6.45. So then I was like, of course, I jumped to conclusions after one day of like one nap thinking, oh my gosh, maybe he's ready for only one nap a day. Anyway, so we tried it the next day and it absolutely failed because he then woke up again at 5.30 and then he was just super overtired. So in that process, I did check in with Steph. So for those of you who don't know, when we were doing sleep training, uh, we worked with Sleep by Steph. So The biggest learnings, I think, from working with Steph was getting the foundations right. Like Harvey has like a sweet spot with the warmth in his room that keeps him really cozy in the morning and all through the night. He really likes a super dark room. Um, Like we've noticed whenever we travel and all that sort of stuff, he can still nap and he can still sleep when it's not like pitch black, but it's just like not as deep. And she helped us do things like get rid of the dummy and all that sort of stuff. So it was uh, – we thoroughly enjoyed it and we learned so many fundamentals from her um, that I suppose really instilled a lot of confidence in us moving forward and moving through all the regressions and everything that might happen with his sleep. But I did touch base with her because I was kind of like, I feel like I'm doing everything right, you know, I but I just can't get him to sleep past that point. You know, I'm okay with it. It's okay if he's an early riser but like also <laughs> – if I'm being like completely honest, it would be great <laughs> to get him sleeping fast. And so what she kind of saw from our routine is that we had kind of been edging his bedtime a little bit later. And um, she was saying that his his day, like hours in the day is kind of stretched a little bit too far because he's getting up so early and then he's going to bed later that maybe he might be a little bit overtired. Even though he is getting good naps in the day, he might be getting a little bit overtired and therefore waking in the morning. So she's recommended that we edge his bedtime a little bit earlier. And the last couple of days we've been putting him to bed at 6.30 instead of um, 7.30 or even seven. Like it makes such a difference, even just half an hour. And he's been sleeping past six. So it's still like six on the dot or like 10 past six. Um, but also what's been happening the last couple of mornings is he'll wake up at six, he might cry out for about five minutes, then he'll settle and he might settle back down and kind of have another little cat nap for 15 to 20 minutes and then actually want to get out of bed after 6.30. So it's already improving. And all we did was put him to bed a little bit earlier and kind of adjust his naps so that there was still enough time after his last nap of the day to put him to bed at 6.30. So that was really good. Appreciated that help from Steph. And yeah, we'll let, let's hope that he's out of his phase of waking up at 5.30. That would be great. I would love to say a big thank you to everyone who joined me in the Kick Bump Facebook community for the live workout the other day. So it was Monday the 9th, the day after, after Mother's Day. That was so lovely to run you guys through a workout. I enjoyed it so much and got a really great response from you guys saying that you loved it too. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, we have a private Facebook community for kick bump users or people who are just, you know, wanting that kind of virtual mothers group. So we would love to have you there if you want to join a very friendly and encouraging kick bump community you can find us on Facebook and I think after doing that live I you know it sparked a lot of um, interest in more of those things and I'm so I'm so up for that so feel free to let me know within the community what you guys would like to see Uh, and I might even pop a question in in there actually um, to see what kind of lives and stuff that you guys would enjoy not just you know, from me, but some of our kick experts coming on and and sharing some insights and stuff like that as well. I'm sure you would enjoy. So yeah, thank you for everyone who joined me. I can have more of that sort of stuff coming. And if you couldn't join me, uh, you can go back and watch the workout. It's posted within the Facebook community. So feel free to try it out. Another update would be that the cake recipe. So Harvey's birthday cake, his first birthday cake. I wanted to make him something that was delicious, that everyone would enjoy. But I also just wanted to kind of shy away from going overboard with sugars and stuff like that. I am not gonna, you know, Um, I'm not going to avoid sugars or make him avoid sugars forever or anything like that. I know they're just a part of life and I love indulging in them myself. So it's, it's not like I'm trying to be strict with him, but at the moment, the most beautiful thing is he'll be eating his lunch or dinner or whatever. And he's like, not, I don't want to use the word treat, but the thing that he like looks forward to the most is like blueberries or grapes. And I would love to keep that up for as long as possible. I feel like the earlier I introduce things like chocolate and all of that yummy stuff, um, they're the kind of things that he'll be crying out for. Um, And I know it's only a matter of time, you know, when he's at Kinder or at kids' parties and stuff like that where all of that stuff is just available, you know, and that'll happen and I'm totally fine with that. But for his first birthday cake, I wanted to, yeah, try and have it sweet and yummy but still super nutritious as well. So I used a a cake recipe with one of our recipe contributors uh, to the Kick app, Mandy. She helped me out and then it was just it worked out so well that all the adults at the party loved it and he loved it that we were like, we've got to pop this in the app. And so many of you reached out and asked what recipe I followed. So if you are looking for a first birthday cake or a kid's birthday cake, or even just like a cake to enjoy as a, you know, adult, um, I highly recommend it. It is almond flour based. So like if your bub is uh, intolerant, I mean, sorry, allergic to almonds, like obviously that wouldn't work out, but it is called the blueberry almond cake in the Kick app. You can find it there and it is Delicious highly recommend trying it. Hope you all enjoy it, especially if you guys use it for your bub's first birthday, please post that in the community and let me see your creations. That would be amazing. And then I suppose on the topic of food, another exciting thing, our kick toddler range is expanding in Coles. So you might've seen me use you know, our kick pastas. We've got kick pastas for toddlers, Uh, We've got pasta sauces for little toddlers. We've got wheat-free oat cereals, um, which is, yeah, we're so excited to expand that range. And the little um, puff range that we have, Harvey is obsessed with. They look like little Cheerios. He is obsessed. They're his favorite snack. Um, And it's just super exciting for me, I think, being able to have products you know, out there super accessible that Harvey enjoys and that I know where they came from and I know all the ingredients and I'm, you know, it's, I mean, it's my own brand, so I trust it very much and I'm really excited to share all that with you. So do keep an eye out. It will be a slow rollout over um, the next month or so in your local Coles. You should see them there in the uh, kids aisle, sorry, the children's aisle or the baby, the baby section. So today's chat which I'm super excited about, we have got midwife Zoe. And Zoe is, she was just a delight to talk to. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat. Uh, Zoe shares a lot of educational content that's super easy to digest and she's quite fun to follow on Instagram. The way that she shares her educational content is quite fun. She also has a great podcast as well, which is called Midwife in My Pocket podcast. So we recommend that as well. But we came to you guys for questions to ask Zoe. So these are all things that come up quite commonly for Zoe and she was so happy to share her knowledge and expertise on the matter. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to say I learned a lot, but a lot of the stuff we covered, I had learned through my friend who was a midwife before having Harvey and I got to say they were things that I had no idea about prior to that and so I was so grateful for Zoe to share all this info because I think a lot of what she has to say is super, super important for those of you who might be nearing the end of your pregnancy and yeah, I hope it makes you feel super empowered going into birth and everything that comes after that. So here is Zoe. Welcome to the Kick a Bump Kick Pod. Zoe, tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into the wonderful world of midwifery?
1: Hi, Steph. Thank you so much for having me. So <laughs> I, um, I guess it's so, I always like get stumped up at this question, like talking about myself. Um, but I'm 24, turning 25 this month, um, and I'm a registered nurse and midwife here in Townsville. Um, not very sunny Townsville at the moment, but yeah, love living life in far North Queensland. Um, I'm currently with my fiance and I have a little Labrador puppy, which is pretty much the equivalent of my child. <laughs> I like to devote my life to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess midwifery started with me just wanting to make a positive contribution to the workforce and try and feel like I was doing something beneficial to someone every day and I guess make a positive impact on their life so I started nursing and felt like something was missing Um, felt like I needed to do something that was a little bit more for I guess women's health and helping women through such an important time in their life and it wasn't until I watched um my first birth I happened to be a maternity nurse on um a maternity ward and a woman had a birth uh, birthed a baby and from that moment on i was hooked and just obsessed with the idea of being able to be a part of what may be the best and worst moments of some people's lives um but yeah it's truly a privilege and i'm so happy that i get to do what i do um and then make you know an educational page off the back of that as well so yeah, I, I love my job and I love the people I meet through
0: it. So, yeah, that's my spirit. Uh I have to collectively say that you guys are seriously incredible and I, I say that, you know, very generalised, but honestly every single midwife I've ever come across has the same kind of positive or energetic uh, look on their job and it's yeah. just – it's so incredible because it's, it's really – you guys really do have a very important and impactful job and it's it's so amazing to hear you so passionate about it. Yeah. And I feel like even throughout my labour and the time that I was in hospital, I met many midwives. <laughs> and as I said, every single one of them made me feel so incredible for, you know, what I was doing and what yeah. was happening. Yeah. But we're also so open to... Uh, questions and open to, to helping me in any way, shape, or form. I wonder, yes. I know I asked a bazillion questions to my midwife.
1: Yes. yes, I swear that's like 80% of our role, like 20% doing the baby stuff and then the other 80 helping you, <laughs> which yeah, we love. Exactly. We love
0: it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it because I'm going to ask you <laughs> a lot of questions <laughs> today. But to start with, I would love to know, you know, what are the most common Questions that you feel you get?
1: Yeah, so it can be, it's nearly impossible to try and summarise, I guess, the million questions, especially um, like new mums who are fresh to it. They've never done this before, or the only experiences they can relate to are the ones of their friends or their family. Um, But regardless of all of that, it's actually really funny that the one question that I'll always go back to. Um or that will always pop up in, like, antenatal appointments or literally in the birth scenario is will I poo myself? Like, honestly, every <laughs> single time. <laughs> it's like, will I poo or will I not? Like, what happens if I poo? And regardless That's of, yeah. the, like, how confused people are throughout their pregnancy, it's always the one, even, like, the repeat mothers that come back to it. Um, so, yeah, the questions vary from time to time, but I think, yeah, that would definitely be the most common <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's you know, definitely something I asked because yeah.
0: it's – I mean, even after giving birth, I'm surprised that I didn't because it literally <laughs> felt like I was – yeah. Doing a poo, yeah. like it was a hundred percent. It was like, I mean, that's probably a little bit TMI, but oh. I mean, for our listeners, they'll they'll probably be, <laughs> be <able laughs> relating to, to what I have to say exactly. But oh. it, it's so it's so funny. I can I can only imagine how many times that question would have come up. And and I think the question as to like what happens if I do uh, that, yes. that played in my mind so many times. Like I oh. was like, please tell me that if I do, you'll just like clean it, it up and say it. nothing yes. about it. Absolutely.
1: And I always. <laughs> Gives like the partners a look, so if I know that it's happening and I know that they know, I'll be like, Shut up, <laughs> she yeah. does not need to know. <laughs> She's like, She probably knows it in the back of her mind, so <laughs> don't bring it up. But yeah, we're very quick (laughs) at it. Like we get rid of it quick, smart. And honestly, it's completely normal. Like I think that's the beauty of midwifery is we see everything. So nothing phases us regardless of whether it's poo, vomit or any other fluid. We're all over it. That's pretty
0: amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Phenomenal. Um, Okay. So what about when it does come to childbirth? There's a a lot of different ways it can go down and a lot of opinions and stories and everything like that. Is there a common myth that you know of that needs busting?
1: Oh, yes. There's so many. And I think um, especially with older mums or I guess older midwives they love to sort of push this narrative that birth or postpartum can only be done one way. Um, and if you mm. deviate from that one way, it, they do like to, I guess, shame people for what they do, which is really a shame. And I think as a midwife, it's my job to pick up the pieces from, I guess, those common myths that are going around. Um, and the one that really grinds my gears is the one about when you don't breastfeed your baby, you're not able to bond with your baby And it's so common because you feel like you get these mothers that come through and they've tried everything they can to breastfeed their bub and whether or not they enjoy it, or it's just not working for them, or, you know, things just aren't clicking into place because it's not as natural as everyone likes to think. um, That's when I come into play and I try to pick up the pieces and remind them that like, it's completely normal. These things happen and you're still going to be able to bond with your baby no matter what your I guess feeding experiences are or your birth experience and I think that's just the hardest thing because it's almost as if there's this element of competition between the Mm. mums that breastfeed or the mums that formula feed the mums that have a vaginal birth the ones that have a cesarean Um, and it can be really hard as the midwife and as the health professional to I guess, put a clinical standpoint on it and say, well, no, like this isn't going to change the way you bond with your baby at all. So I think that's the most common one that I see a lot of, particularly in younger mums who are approaching this for the first time and who feel so defeated when things aren't going according to, you know, their friend's birth story or what they've heard in the media and they start to panic because of that. And, yeah, it can be really tricky. But, um, yeah, you can bond with your baby in so many more ways than what people think (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I think that's where it is super important that you guys have such a beautiful, I suppose, way about it like you just said then um, because I feel like when you are treated uh, by someone who might have one certain opinion yeah. or judgment yeah it, it's hard because especially when you're a new mum, and as you said you may only have like a few other birth stories to compare to or a few yeah. other um, you know breastfeeding journeys to compare to you're really relying on you guys who mm-hmm. you know are, are with women every single day you're seeing hundreds of births yeah. happen and you're yeah. seeing so many different experiences it's almost up to you guys to comfort that person in them knowing that there are so many different ways it can happen and, and yeah. that it can be laid out. And so it is a shame when you do come across yeah. those who might still
1: be opinionated. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so judgmental, like I think as women and as you know people in the birthing environment, we should be supporting each other, not tearing other mm-hmm. mothers down or making them feel inferior. Because um, all it does is just contribute to this horrible cascade where postpartum depression develops and heaps of other like birth trauma and that sort of thing. It can become really quite difficult for mums, parents, um, families trying to set up while they have that experience tainted. So, yeah, it's a shame that it's still rife <laughs> at the moment, but hopefully yeah. we'll make a difference to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think. I think absolutely I can feel that there would be some change happening. So it's good. We just need more yeah. more like you. Zoe. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's really great you brought up birth trauma because we'd love to touch on that today with you. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, as we just touched on, when you're a new mum or it's the first time you're going through birth, sometimes things don't go to plan. Um, and, you know, some someone told me, in fact, my mum told me that, one of the best things that she kind of went into birth with was to not make too much of a plan because she wasn't like set in stone in her mind as to how it was meant to play out and therefore when it when it didn't go to plan, mate, like she was four and a half weeks early with my brother. Yeah. She was camping on the Murray River when oh. she went into labour. Um <laughs> She was kind of just thrown into it, and it just it just happened, and she didn't really have time to think about, you know, whether it was her plan to do it the way that yeah. it happened or not. Yeah. Um, and therefore, she wasn't too attached. Whereas she had a lot of mothers in her mother's group who really had a certain plan in mind and were honestly traumatized and, you know, really emotional about it for a long period of time after birth because it didn't go to plan. And so I think it's really important to talk about because it's not to say that you know you should go into birth without a plan or. Mm you know there's so many different ways you can go about getting prepared and ready for that experience but for the times that it might not go I suppose how you might have imagined it to go or how Mm -hmm. you might have heard from your friends and family that their experience was I suppose what are like a few different things that could come up maybe some like assisted births Things that might come up that yeah. is quite commonly, you know, said. For example, I told my obstetrician I didn't want an epidural. Like yeah. that was something that I I didn't want. But then mm-hmm. as soon as I got into labor and it went on for as long as it did, and mm-hmm. I was in as much pain, and I got to the point of full exhaustion, and I was still only two centimeters dilated, yeah. I was like, yeah. "Okay, now I want the <laughs> epidural." <laughs> Give it
1: to me. Um,
0: but I also was educated as to what that was, what that would mean, yes. you know, I couldn't I couldn't be on my feet anymore and I yeah. was okay with that and everything like that. So yeah. to a point I was prepared and I had a little bit of a plan but I was also not too attached to it that yeah. I couldn't deviate from it. Yeah. And I know that birth trauma particularly can come up a lot to those where things might be completely out of their control mm-hmm. and absolutely not go to plan. And, and I suppose I'd just love to know, I suppose any – anything that you would love to say to someone who might be nearing the end of their pregnancy, you know, they might be ready to go through their first experience of childbirth. Like yeah, anything you
1: can prep them with. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like you said, Steph, the way I guess people wrap their minds around things like epidurals or the unpredicted is through education. And it's something that I harp on about all the time um, because a lot of people associate the fear of the unknown with knowing too much. And that's mm-hmm. not the case. Um, In a birth scenario, I think education is the most important tool to use so that you know exactly what can happen or exactly what could possibly happen and then how things are going to be responded to or reacted to because of that. Um, So, for example, with assisted birth, so your vacuum and forceps, I think it's really important to understand that. Even if that's not something that you want or something that you're really, I guess, envisioning for your birth experience, it's really important to know what they are, um, what the effects are for you and baby so you can make an informed decision. And if it does have to happen because of an emergency scenario, you're able to process it through your head instead of being told Mm. then and there on the spot when, you know, baby's heart rate might be dropping or there's something going really wrong and you're having to process the fact that you're in the middle of an emergency, your baby might not be doing so well or you might not be doing so well and then you've got this new information that's just being bombarded at you Um, and I think that is where the trauma comes from is that really horrible feeling of feeling out of control Um, whereas education can really, I guess, not fix it but it makes it – A lot more bearable in the moment especially when you are a new mum and you don't know what's going on you can have that little bit of sense of oh yes i remember that from birth classes or i remember that um from the education i did in my spare time so yeah i honestly can't recommend it enough because birth is never linear um regardless Mm -hmm. of how many births you've had every single one of them will look the same and i think that's the hardest thing as a midwife trying to convince people um, that birth looks different for everyone. And regardless of whether you had a vaginal birth the first time, it's not to say that you're not going to have an emergency cesarean the second time or a vacuum or forceps the third time. So I think just trying to work through um, what is involved in those so that you can make an informed decision like you did, Seth, with the epidural. Um, And by all means, making a plan is important, but it's also important to understand that birth never goes to plan. Babies don't have any plan. They just come and do what they want. Yeah, <laughs> so well, Harvey really just important. wanted to stay in there. Yeah, <laughs> he just didn't exactly. want to come
0: out. He was too comfortable. Yeah. But, um, so, I mean, outside of education, Zoe, would you say that there's anything else uh, to help reduce maybe someone's chances of experiencing birth trauma?
1: Yeah, so after birth particularly, um, it's really hard to reduce it in the moment because a lot of things happen. And as a midwife, I try and talk my way through it with the person and with the family because I know how traumatic it would be even for me and my partner if we were to have a baby. Like I know my partner doesn't know a lot about birth, so he would assume the worst if something was happening to me. So I always make an effort to talk during birth and then after birth, organising a debrief. Um, because I think it's important to work through the emotions that you experience and know why things unfolded the way they did, just so you can get that sort of emotional closure about it. Because nine times out of 10, a lot of people don't know why things happened the way that they did and they can feel really disheartened or they feel like their body betrayed them or that they did something wrong when that's not necessarily always the case. Um, so I think talking about it after birth is really important, whether that be with your healthcare professional, so your midwife, your obstetrician, or a GP or a trusted um, psychologist and that sort of thing. So I think it's really important because it's so, I guess it's neglected in a way, like people think that birth is just going to be a certain Sunshine, experience for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't always pan out that way. So even if it is a perfect birth, that can still be like a clinically perfect birth. That can still be traumatic for some people as well because they might not have been prepared for it. So, I think that's the most important thing: It's just talking about your experiences, is yeah, and working through it.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, another thing on some kind of birth lingo that yeah. that might occur in the birthing suite uh, was delayed clamping for me, yeah. Yeah. and. I would love you to chat through. I, I had a little bit of info before it actually happened for me, so I kind of knew what I was in for. But uh, would you mind explaining to anyone who had has no idea what delayed clamping is and what
1: yeah. the benefits are? Yeah, so um, when baby is born, it's obviously common practice now because um, I think it's happening without a lot of people even knowing, um, yeah. which is nice because the clinical benefits are so huge. Um, So baby's connected to the cord, which is connected to the placenta, just a bit of basic anatomy. And after birth, what we do is we usually delay the clamping of the cord until um, it stops pulsating. So what that means is that baby gets a huge hit of nutrients, um, so particularly iron, which can help with developmental um, I guess, progression and help them reduce the risk of iron deficiency. Um, it can also increase their hemoglobin, which is an oxygen that's bound to red blood cells. So when they get a hit of that blood, um, they're able to, I guess, pink up a lot more quickly, breathe a lot more efficiently, and they have those benefits of having that uh, those extra iron stores, which comes into play a lot later down the track. Um, so when it's clamped, it's literally just we wait for it to stop pulsating clamp it and then um from there you can either go and have skin to skin with your baby straight away skin to skin can still be maintained as long as the cord is long enough and it's not going to be pulling on anything Um, But it's also important to be aware that if there is an emergency scenario with baby um, where we need to give oxygen or whatever the case may be, we do have to cut the cord a lot quicker. Um, So it's just something to be mindful of. But it's really good that it is becoming common practice now. Even in cesareans, it's still something that can be um, done, which is really nice.
0: I don't remember how long mine went for, but I do remember – I remember when I he was first passed to me and for that first like little while of holding him, the cord was like, quite tight. (laughs) So like I couldn't I couldn't pull him up any higher (laughs) on my chest. And so I was like really trying to look at him and trying to see his face. And it wasn't until we like clamped it and I had a little bit more freedom that I actually could turn and like see his face. And I remember that moment was so special. But yeah, it was quite a funny feeling because (laughs) the placenta was still still inside. I was like trying to hold him (laughs) as much as I could. But yeah it's really I've
1: done that so many times I've gone to like yank the Baby out and put it on you, and
0: I'm like, oh, that can't be arranged. Is there like a average time that that it happens for?
1: Is it kind of? Yeah, usually it can go, it can vary. So I usually go off the cord pulsating because I guess that's the best indicator. But usually can be anywhere from like three to five minutes, sometimes longer. Um, but usually within that time frame, so it feels a lot longer. I was gonna say (laughs) because it's all such a blur.
0: Absolutely No, I I was going to say I remember pretty clearly that moment where it was really, really tight and then obviously once we clamped it, it loosened up. And I remember just wanting to have a really good look at it. I was like, let me see the placenta. Like I'm so intrigued and it just looked like some massive raw piece of steak.
1: Honestly, yeah. (laughs) I'm one of those freaks too that like after the birth I'll be like, so do you want to see it? Like what are we doing with it? (laughs) Like nine times out of ten, people will be like, "Get it away! I can't yeah, do it." Yeah. Oh no! I to wanted to look at it.
0: Yeah, yeah. He did, he did. He cut the cord. He also um, helped deliver Harvey and oh, kind so of passed. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was lovely. really, it was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I remember we wanted to like have a good look at it, and then once we looked at it, we were like, "Okay, that's it." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Get away! I'm done now. Now, yeah. I, now I'm I'm
1: done." Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <So> Fair enough. <laughs>
0: So another thing that can be incredibly overwhelming, you know, past birth, the the next thing in the fourth trimester, as some call it, is the start of, you know, the breastfeeding journey. And it can be really hard and really overwhelming for the most of us. Is there anything that we can do during our pregnancy to help Mm -hmm. us prepare? I'm asking this question, even (laughs) though I know part of the answer, because I, I have a friend who's a midwife and she kind of she gave me a heads up and so I, I did some of these things. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. But what advice would you give to new <laughs> so, moms, Yeah, uh, I so think, I struggling think, to breastfeed? Yeah. So I think the most important thing is to keep an open mind because, like I said before, Um, breastfeeding doesn't come naturally to everyone, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. So it's always good to know that even though it might be your preferred feeding method, it's nice to keep an open mind and just know that it might take a bit longer or you might not have that supply there initially as supply usually takes about three to five days to establish, if not longer. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that you can do as a pregnant woman to help get yourself prepared is, um, antenatal expressing. So hand expressing. Um, I call it a boob massage with the ultimate mm-hmm. goal of producing milk or colostrum at that time. Um, so once you get to that, I guess, 37-week mark where your term um, and your doctor or your midwife has given you the all clear, um, you can go ahead and start hand-expressing to produce colostrum and I always tell people that you probably won't get anything at all. And if you don't, that's completely normal. Like your body, mm. you're still pregnant. So your body is still mm. producing hormones to inhibit lactation. Um, some people get heaps and that's completely mm. normal as well. Um, so I always recommend like collecting as much as you can, popping it in the deep freeze, labeling it, all of that lovely thing, all of those lovely stuff, um, and then bring it into hospital with you. So you've just got that extra supply there should you need it um and it's also a great way to relieve that pressure that's associated with is my baby getting too much like is my milk going to establish itself Um, and even if you get nothing it's really handy at 3 a.m when you know you can hear you can hear baby starting to wake for a feed you can start to massage your breasts to give them a little bit of colostrum so you get time to organize your little setup and get baby latched so I think it's really important to become familiar with your breasts and how to handle them Um, because there's nothing harder than being a midwife with someone who is really wanting to breastfeed but they have no idea what to do and they feel really awkward trying to handle their breasts and that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, it's one of the biggest ways that you can prepare, I would think. It's –
0: oh, and I – so I did that and it was so funny because when – I think I started around 37 weeks and I heard so many different stories as you just said you know some women not being able to get anything at all and then other women were just like literally leaking Leaking. you know before they'd even had a baby and I wasn't at that point but When I started the antenatal, I remember the first couple of times I tried and I would kind of do it into a teaspoon and then use a syringe to like suck it up. And I remember sending my friend a photo and I was like, oh, like I feel like I was here for like half an hour and I only got one mil. And she's like, Steph, that's amazing. That's awesome. (laughs) And I
1: was like,
0: oh, cool. (laughs) And then for me, it just became this like little, not competition with anyone, but I just like, I found it like a game. Like I was like, I want to see like how much much I can can collect. (laughs) and i i actually got so much i remember when i brought it into the hospital like i had all of these like syringes filled with like three mils of gloss and everyone was like oh my god this is great but uh, i (laughs) know yeah but i was i was so shattered you're gonna hate hearing this but i was so shattered because i brought them in they obviously like kept them in the freezer and stuff and then he my supply was all right it kind of it came in and he was feeding enough um you know I, we didn't get any inkling at all that I needed to like pump him up with extra colostrum or anything yeah. like that yeah. in fact he was not losing much weight at all yeah. and everyone yeah. was like this is great um but the, po- the point that was really shattering was uh I moved for to into a hospital so I went private and yeah. The hospital that I was working with went from hospital into a hotel stay. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was so fortunate to have experienced that because that was a dream. Yeah. And when we moved over to the hotel, something was missed and communication was missed. Mm -hmm. And my colostrum was left at the hospital. But then it came. It came over and it defrosted oh, because no one no. told me it was like at reception. And then oh, this no. midwife walked into the room and she was like, you know, you've only got 24 hours to use that. And I yeah. was like, what? Because <laughs> there was so much. And I was—I literally cried. Like I sobbed. I was so, I, oh, like, no. I, I was so, so shattered. But I ended up like totally, totally. <laughs> But I, I ended up, um, someone actually, and another midwife actually said, you know what, he can't consume it but mm-hmm. it's still really good for, you know, in his first bath at home, yeah, like yeah. put all of the colostrum, mixed with some water or whatever, in his first bath and that's yeah. like a really nice yeah. way of still using it um, yeah. instead of just throwing it out. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I actually, um, <laughs> another tip, I get women who have like old chapsticks, so, you know, like the little twist chapsticks, um, to empty them out and clean them and sterilize them and put the colostrum in that and freeze it. Oh. That way you can use it on like their rashes and that sort of thing, which can be really handy if they've got like little pustules like with the newborn rash mm. and that sort of thing. Um, so a mm. mum actually told that to me um, that she used it on her baby's cuts and I was like, oh, I've got to keep passing that on now. <laughs> I'm going to claim it as so amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's so It is handy. like magic though. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah,
0: 100%. So good. So after birth, there's obviously a lot of overwhelming things. You're asking a million questions. There's still a lot to do. And even like prior to birth, there's little things like, well, it's not a little task, but setting up a nursery, getting prepped for what's going to be at home for you postpartum. Yeah. And that postpartum time is a really fragile time for a lot of women. You know, our hormones are all over the place. I know I was an emotional wreck for sure. (laughs) Um, But there was little things that I wanted to do to try and, you know, help myself in in terms of not just a physical recovery postpartum but also, you know, for my mental health as well Mm -hmm. because I, I, I was under the understanding. I mean, I knew, sorry, I was educated that I might not feel myself. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what are some ways, uh, maybe fun tasks or light tasks or anything really that you, that women can do to prepare themselves for that tough time postpartum and recover post-birth?
1: Yeah. So I think it's really important. I always tell parents this, um, especially new parents, because I think they get so lost in trying to keep their baby alive and trying to do the best for their baby that they forget that they have needs as well so i think the biggest thing is making sure that you're looking after yourself so you can look after your baby um so whether that be making time for yourself in terms of i guess those basic self-care things like going for a walk. Spending time with your pets, that sort of thing, reading a book. Um, and I know it's a lot easier said than done, especially when there's a newborn in the picture and you might not have a huge amount of support from family or friends or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think it's really important to just do something for yourself so you feel a little bit more human and you'd be amazed at the difference that... A good shower, or a good walk, or a good, you know, couple of episodes of a TV show or something can do wonders for your mental health and just make you feel a lot more fresh and recovered. Um, I also always recommend that women have a team around them, so whether that's a support network of friends and family, or whether it's health professionals. So it'll obviously look different for everyone, um, but I always recommend finding a really good GP, um, whether or not they're women's health specialists. That's fine. Um, A lactation consultant, women's health physios um, and midwives as well. So that up until that six week mark, you've got as many people around you as possible trying to support you and help you through your recovery um, because it can really feel isolating. And that unfortunately contributes to that poor mental health outcomes for women, um, particularly in the postpartum phase when they do feel so alone and so isolated. Um, And it can be really beautiful to be able to have these people to go to and then see them maybe for your next pregnancy or see them out in the street and you're doing really well. So highly recommend doing that. And like I said, making time for yourself and your partner as well is so important. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people do forget the partners, especially <laughs> if they're men, <laughs> they forget that, you know, they're there and that they're trying and it's a new adjustment for them as well. So checking in with them and making sure they're okay There's a lot of mums and bubs groups and dads groups as well um, that might be in your local area. So just going out and sourcing those um, is really important because everyone is going through it in the newborn phase. So it's really important to check in. Oh, such
0: such great tips. It really, truly does take... A village um, (laughs) and I have lent on so many different people both health professionals and you know just personal relationships of mine for support yeah and I honestly feel like I couldn't have done it without them um but I suppose with that also comes you know family and friends wanting to be around the bub yeah It's a very, very exciting time and I completely understand it all because I think prior to having Harvey myself, I probably would have been that friend because I had nothing to compare it to and had (laughs) no idea. I would have, you know, wanted to come and see and like really wouldn't have known the best way to, Mm -hmm. I suppose, be a helping hand or how to support because I hadn't experienced it myself and so Mm -hmm. I think that there is some things that, people should be aware of and should Mm -hmm. consider um i know for josh and i for example it was a personal decision that we decided we didn't want um any of our family and friends who hadn't had the whooping cough vaccine for example um around harvey for the or holding harvey for the first like six months of his life and that was a personal thing that we put out but we messaged that to our friends our closest friends and family Mm -hmm. you know well before he was born yeah and just made it pretty like matter of fact like this is our decision and I hope you can respect it and we'll respect your decision if you choose not to but just you know and so for me I was I felt comfortable to do something like that but then there's been other times where maybe I haven't felt as comfortable to speak up there was a couple of times in the first couple of weeks where maybe someone overstayed their welcome (laughs) and it wasn't because they were you know, it wasn't really their fault. They just wouldn't have even known that they were doing so because maybe before Harvey was born we would have spent hours and hours with this person (laughs) and stayed up all night and it was totally okay. But I think, um, yeah, there's certain things to be aware of obviously. But how do you think that – I suppose what's your advice on uh, us being able to kind of have the confidence or to be encouraged – to communicate things like this with our friends and family, things like, you know, not kissing the baby, all of that sort of stuff.
1: Um, So like you said, Steph, I think it's just being really communicative from the get-go because if there's a lack of communication or there's a misunderstanding, that's when things start to become a little bit complicated um, mm. So I think it's really important even well before baby comes like you did um, making sure that people are aware of your wishes and that they respect that and it doesn't have to be done in a way that like is a matter of fact like I want you to get this or I need you mm. to get this mm. um, it can just be you know these are my preferences this is what I would you know, want from you guys if you're going to be visiting my child and then send them some education as well if they do misunderstand it or they don't understand why you're asking that of them. Um, I think it's really important to sort of link it back to that just so you've got some evidence backing you Um, because people these days, especially like with all of the pro and anti-vaccine thing going on, um, it can be really beneficial to just let people know that you do respect their decision either way, Um, but this is what you want. Um, and I think in terms of like the not kissing babies and that sort of thing, that is really important. And a lot of people, particularly older people, don't realise it. Like the first thing mm. they do when they see a baby is they want to just smush it up to their face and <laughs> give them lots of cuddles, which is fine. Like it is a very exciting time. But I think just reassuring people or assuring people that kissing's not okay because um, we're all, I guess, born with a certain percentage of herpes simplex virus, whether some people have it and it's active or some people have it and it's inactive, um, just because you don't have cold sores or things like that doesn't mean you're not still carrying the virus. Um, so really important to just reiterate with people that even though they might not have any active sores, babies can actually be fatally at risk if you do kiss them and you know that sort of thing. So I think it's really important just to establish that from the get go, like you said, Steph, um, as well as things like a lot of people aren't aware with if you have smokers in your family as well, um, the huge role that that can play with SIDS. Um, so just letting people know that, hey, I don't mind that you're a smoker, but whilst you're in my house, there's not to be any smoking. Um, or if you have had a smoke during the day, make sure you shower and change your clothes before interacting with baby because that can contribute um, to a higher risk of um, sudden infant death syndrome. But, yeah, I think it's just really important to get it all out in the open, whether you do it with a family meeting or on Facebook, so that it's not specific to anyone. Um, yeah. I think those are the greatest tips to make sure that, you know, you're not creating a huge drama when it doesn't need to be.
0: And I think I think that such great tips. I think the educational point is, is so important and is such a great way of doing it because I think... You know, it's one thing to say your point of view and your opinion. Um, but if they disagree with you or they think it's ridiculous, like they're always going to be like, oh, I mean, yeah. that's not going to happen so or whatever. Dramatic. But if you, exactly. But if you have stuff that backs up your opinion yeah. and they still act that way, it's like, okay, yeah. this is just say yeah. more about that person. Yeah. Um, yeah but exactly. I, I mean, from my point of view, it's like, imagine if something
1: was to happen yes how yeah. bad would you feel exactly exactly and and that's the thing that I tell people too like if they aren't going to respect your decisions what's really the point of having them around like I know it's probably easier said than done but at the end of the day it's your baby and it's their health that is most important and your health as well um, so making sure that you protect that is yeah, first and foremost. But it can be really difficult. I know firsthand yeah. how hard it can be. I've had to kick parents out of birth suites and out of hospitals and it's just it's horrendous. It's yeah, not very nice. But oh, I yeah, think any reasonable be... person will be able to understand. Yes. The the um,
0: most important word they're being reasonable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've had some really, really incredible tidbits and, and way of your opinion and your the way that you approach things is just so beautiful, Zoe. And I would really love to know if there's you know one thing, and it might already be something that you've you yeah. might have already said, but yeah. if there is something that you wish everyone who is experiencing pregnancy and birth was aware of, what would it be?
1: Yeah. So um, I guess I've already harped on about it, but <laughs> I really can't stress like the importance of education in a birth scenario. Um, the less you know, isn't always better. Um, especially when things are happening that are, like we said, out of your control, it's really important to make sure that you understand every single aspect of birth and pregnancy, even if it gets to the point where you have to take a notepad and pen into your antenatal appointments and just make sure that you understand things. So if there's something that a doctor or a midwife suggests to you, and you don't quite know what they're on about or what they're suggesting, write it down, research it later. I promise that you will feel a 100 times better for doing it and you'll be able to make an informed decision based on what you find and feel empowered in your birth rather than, feeling out of your depth and overwhelmed um, because birth is full-on enough as it is without having to add in that fear of the unknown and I think that's the hardest thing when I see people come through and they have no idea what's going on and they think oh you know if people used to do this in fields so I don't need to know anything about it and it's like well please know something about it um, because yeah and like we said, with birth plans and that sort of thing, it's okay to have a plan, but it's also really good to know what to do if that doesn't, if your plan doesn't work out, basically. Um, and get your partner involved, include people that are close to you in education sessions. Um, that way everyone feels empowered to know the best things to do, um, regardless of whether they're involved in your birth or not. So I think it's just really important to know your body and know what you're going to go through and trust your gut at all times because nine times out of ten it'll be right every time so well not nine times out of ten ten times out of (laughs) (laughs) ten i love it
0: thank you so much zoe honestly i really love this chat and i know that there is going to be so many you know community members from the kick bump community who are going to thoroughly enjoy this chat Uh, i think particularly those who maybe nearing the end of their pregnancy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I can't thank you enough for your time and, and also will absolutely recommend your page and, and oh, your podcast you. as well. It's so amazing, all the thank educational you. content that you put out there. It's so awesome. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Steph. It's been, it's been fun.
0: <laughs> well, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with midwife Zoe. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I will pop her information in our show notes so you can see more of her. And I'll be back in your ears this Wednesday with Lawsy with another KickPod episode and in a fortnight from now for another kick bump episode. As always, I would love to hear any feedback you have on this podcast or topics you would like me to talk to um, or people you would like to talk to. Uh, you can either email me at podcast at au, or you can head to our private Facebook community, Kick Bump. Uh, and let me know there and as I said at the start of that episode this episode you can join our Facebook community we would love to have you it's growing it's so supportive beautiful beautiful community in there um, where you can share everything kick bump related motherhood parenting products you love and more and yeah I will talk to you guys soon bye